together into a, gen- a Jewish synagogue. This is Paul and Barnabas. And they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some sided with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Let's pray. Father, now incline our ears to hear your word. Incline our hearts to believe and understand it. Incline our wills to obey it. And incline our desires to yearn, yearn for and praise Christ for delivering the promises of God that were once held off. Lord, we now enjoy full acceptance because of him. And so as we turn to your word, I pray Christ would be revealed in our hearts. And Lord, that we would be stirred to adore you and to live according to your word. So we ask you to speak now for your servants are listening in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to finish this first missionary journey. Paul and Barnabas are on a missionary journey right now. They're on a specific traveling task to preach the gospel to a certain area. And this is going to come to an end at the end of Acts chapter 14, right before the Jerusalem council. And if you'll remember, I actually preached on Acts 15 months ago. I don't remember when it was, but uh, we are going to pick back up there. But I do want you to recognize that we are in the middle of a missionary journey. Remember when Paul was set apart with Barnabas by the church and they were commissioned to go and to preach the word? This is part of that missionary journey. They have embarked, they have left behind the commissioning church and they had John Mark with them. And after a certain time on that journey, John Mark actually departed. He left and he went back home. Well, that's what's going on here. And so they're traveling, they're away from home and they are going city to city to city. And we saw last week that uh, as, as Paul had finished his sermon in, a, in the previous city, that there was a great persecution that arose and that there was a great number who also believed. And so what we're seeing in the book of Acts over and over and over again is the pattern, the apostolic pattern, which laid the foundation of the New Testament church. It was a foundational period in church history. It was unique because of the presence and and active ministry of the the apostles. And the apostles really laid this foundation. They laid the pattern for the early church. And so again, they're, they're traveling city to city. And every time they enter a city, we see their priorities. We see their, their means of reaching the lost. One of the things that we saw context-wise from last week was that after the Jews had rejected the messengers of Christ one more time, Paul and Barnabas said to them, now we are going to change our focus from preaching to the Jews, and we are actually going to go to the Gentiles. And this is according to the word of the Lord in Isaiah 49. Paul recognizes that his command is now to go be a light to the nations, to fulfill, again, the Great Commission, in which Christ said, first you will minister 
in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, these near regions, and then you will go to the ends of the earth. So there's this redemptive chronology that's almost unfolding before us in the book of Acts, that the ministry to the Jews is now somewhat complete because they have sort of saturated that near Jewish region with gospel preaching. And they shook the dust off after that rejection. They said, we are no longer responsible for your rejection. They shook the dust off their feet and they have now moved on to the Gentile realms. Now, again, they are landing in a synagogue here. It doesn't mean that they're not going to preach to Jews anymore, but they recognize that the, the trajectory of their ministry is now moving toward the nations, the people who, who never heard of God. And so you're entering a new context. You're entering a new worldview almost. On the one hand, you were preaching to Jews who knew the Old Testament. They knew the Messianic promises. They knew the character of God. And so they would say, now Christ is the fulfillment. You saw in Peter's sermon, he preaches right from the Old Testament in Acts chapter 2, right? He says, this is what was prophesied in the book of Joel. And he preaches from the Old Testament because the Jews, they knew the books, they knew the words, and they could see how Christ was the fulfillment of that. But he's entering a new worldview. And I'm excited about next week's message because you're going to see a sermon, almost a mini sermon to a Gentile crowd who worships Zeus and Hermes. And do you see how Paul preaches to a totally different worldview? And yet, nonetheless, the connection of the gospel and the application of the gospel is, is utterly equivalent and it's utterly um, still binding on every person who hears it. And so they're entering a brand new uh, worldview. There's sort of a greater mix now between Jews and Gentiles. Before, it was like mostly Jews with some Gentiles intermixed. And then now it's almost getting to this half and half point where there's as many Gentiles as Jews in these areas. And that has a lot to do with sort of Roman and Greek history and who set up towns and what they were trying to do. And there was military uh, strategy with different towns. And that's sort of how we get these mixes of Jews and Gentiles together. Uh, but we're not going to belabor the historic reasons for that right now. But suffice to say, um, these were natural occurrences in, in geopolitical interactions between nations. And so at any rate, there are now more Gentiles listening. And the apostles are sort of having to start from theological scratch in a way. And so what I've titled my message is, is Lesson for the Messenger. This text brings out for us four major priorities and facets of a messenger, of one who is sent to speak for God. And that might be you in a formal sense, you know, or maybe me, maybe it's not many of you, but it's me in a very formal sense that I'm a pastor, I'm a preacher, I'm a herald of God's word. But for us as a church, we're going to see four aspects of the message that we need to absorb as the church, which the church is the called out ones sent into the world. I mean, we are sent ones collectively as a body. And so to embrace these, I think, is to embrace an, an effective approach to ministry, an effective approach to Christian ministry specifically. And so I, I don't use these words messengers uh, or message just haphazardly, because I believe what Paul had just preached on, he said, this message we proclaim to you, right? He used that specific phrase to, to discuss what he was going to preach. He said to the, to the people in that synagogue, this is the message. And then remember what he went on to describe? He described the life of Jesus Christ. 
And so we recognize now that the message of salvation is the man, Jesus Christ, and his ministry and his life. And so the gospel, the message, is to proclaim Christ. And it is to proclaim it. You've heard uh, Francis Assisi or whoever said, you know, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. I, I find that misleading and unhelpful because the primary proclamation of the message is verbal. Right? The, the apostles laid down a pattern of preaching the gospel and works were critical works really they emphasize and they attest to the reality of the scriptures and so we don't in that way we don't diminish good works we don't in any way make those in competition but we certainly don't say that they are sufficient on their own the message has to be proclaimed and it is truly a message all right and so we don't want to leave the interpretation up for grabs we want to do good works, and then we want to explain why we are doing them. That's the twofold nature of preaching the gospel. And so number one, I'm going to show you four things that the, messenger, the messengers need to learn and things about the message. Number one, that the messenger aims to persuade. Number two, the messenger commits to the goal. Number three, the message divides. And number four, the message carries the authority of God. So that's four things, four lessons for the messengers regarding the gospel of Christ and how it is applied to humanity. And so number one, we see that the messenger aims to persuade, to persuade. Now, right in the beginning here, we see that they entered the synagogue and they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks Believed, And so the writer of Acts, who is the physician Luke, the doctor Luke, he has emphasized a particular manner, a particular way that the preaching was conducted. Now, we, we see this phrase over and over and over again. They preached the gospel. They preached the gospel. They declared the gospel. But in this particular phrase, the author says they spoke in such a way that many Jews and Greeks Believe. Now, I don't, th- I don't take this to mean that somehow they diverted from the gospel message, that they adapted a new tactic because they're in a new geographic region. I think it, it just emphasizes for us the desire of the messenger, which is to persuade, which is to win over. And for us to take from that, it, it would be that the preaching, the, the witness of the message of the gospel is not a neutral fact-finding endeavor or lecture of some kind it it is not a just a presentation of facts it is not sort of one side of the story and versus another side of the story it is the aim of the preacher the aim of the messenger is to persuade and to win people to garner their allegiance not to you gospel ministry is not come follow tim come get on board with my vision but to win your allegiance to christ To win you out of where you were, to cause you to move from where you are to where you ought to be. Now that is, that's a presumptuous stance to take in our culture today, which is so hyper tolerant. It it is, it is nothing short of audacious and brash to say, I, my goal is to convince you that you are wrong about your life currently And that you can be right or have assurance if you accept this message. That that is an unbelievable claim for a Christian to make. And yet this is the pattern of Christian ministry. 
And so they're persuading. And Paul would actually admit this later when he wrote the book of 2 Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians, I love this passage. In 2 Corinthians 10.5, Paul says, we take every thought captive to obey Christ. In other words, when people raise objections to Christ, we meet them. And he also says, we destroy lofty arguments raised up against Christ. And we aim to take every thought captive. This is the pattern of Christian ministry. That persuasion is an inevitable part of Christian ministry. Paul would also say in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul says, knowing the fear of God, we persuade others. In other words, it is not the brashness or the bravado of the preacher. It is not the big ego of the church. At least it shouldn't be. It is knowing the fear of the Lord that causes us to persuade that there is a God who is above us who will judge the living and the dead. The God who has given to us the message of the gospel, sent his son, demonstrated his wrath, cleansed us from sin, and is coming back to judge. That God, that fear of God, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. And so the church aims at nothing less than a full revelation of who God is and to actually win over people out of what they once lived and how they once thought into the gospel of grace. They spoke in such a way. They aimed to draw people to Christ. And I would venture to you, propose to you, it's possible that I am not the most persuasive preacher on planet earth. Let's just throw that out there. Okay? But what I want you to recognize is that whether it is verbally stated or not, the gospel makes demands upon you. The gospel cannot neutrally be interacted with. And so I want to challenge you whether or not you hear me explicitly call or persuade. The Holy Spirit is at work through his word. And if God is drawing you, it is a natural part of being a Christian or even as an unbeliever. God is persuading you and you need to respond. You need to change. You need to confess. You need to come into his church and you need to come to Christ the way he calls you to. There is a persuasive element that whether or not the preacher is timid, I mean, Timothy, Paul said to him, you know, you're being too timid. You need to be bold once again. It's possible that Christian preachers are not always as persuasive as they ought to be. But the power of the word is always drawing people. And I would ask you that you would listen for that and that you would position yourself to respond to how God is calling you. Whether or not you hear it out of my mouth, the Lord is at work in supernatural ways. So number one, the messenger aims to persuade. Number two, the messenger commits to a goal. Oh, this is such a typical pattern. Verse two, but, so many believe, verse one, but, verse two, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. This is so typical, right? Because the Jews are struggling to maintain religious superiority in that region. They're struggling to maintain the number one spot atop, you know, your top 10 religions in the area. They, they have that number one spot. They have that religious influence and control and prestige, and they are seeing that slip away. And so when the messengers of the gospel come, and they are persuading people to follow them, and the crowds are starting to follow the Christian leaders rather than the unbelieving Jewish leaders, they are now stirring up and poisoning the minds of those new converts. They are literally trying to sabotage the new confession and the new allegiances that these new believers have made. 
They are sabotaging this allegiance. They're sabotaging their confidence in the gospel message. Literally, they are poisoning their minds. They are introducing doubt. They are introducing uh, criticism. They are introducing second thoughts regarding their confession of the gospel. And this is, again, we see a typical pattern over and over and over again. And so how do the disciples respond to this? I love this. Verse 13. So let's, let's imagine it's written this way. Let's imagine it if maybe we were in their position. So the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they packed up their bags and went down the road. Not so. Verse 13 tells us what they actually did. And this is because the messenger is committed to the goal. So... Because of the attacks, because of the poisoning, because of the confrontation and contradiction that they were facing, because of that, they remained for a long time. I love that. I love seeing that. When the controversy rises up, when the opposition rises up, the apostles meet it. They stand firm. They plant their feet in that region and they say, we are not going. We are now going to remain We are going to stand against this tide of opposition and we are going to be there and we are going to speak boldly for the Lord. The the apostles dig in. And the reason they dig in is to preserve these new converts. It would be so easy to say, oh, they just love a good fight. Right? And, And sometimes as Christians, maybe we're known for loving a good fight especially on social media. We love a good, you know, let me correct you. Let me, let me attack you. Let me show you who's boss. And we can be known for that. That's not why the apostles were doing this. That's not at all. They didn't want to parade their knowledge. They didn't want to stand up and say, we're the best. Do you know why? Because they had new believers there. And Paul stayed in order to preserve these new converts. You know why? Because they were in danger. They were in danger of wolves. They were in danger of false teaching. They were in danger of abandoning their confession. Now, at the risk of sounding like, you know, you can sort of confess Christ and be saved and then abandon and perish, we need to recognize the reality that many confess, who confess Christ, Christ do abandon their confession when things get hard or when a new worldview confronts them or they're not able to answer uh, for challenges that they face in the public square? Why do you think so many young people abandon their Christian confession when they come to university? Because they're not able to answer. They're not able to withstand the intellectual and spiritual challenges that they face. Paul, seeking to prevent that from happening with these new Christians, these very uneducated Christians or uninitiated They're not richly steeped in the word of God, yet they're not richly endowed with the Christian worldview and how it all works together. They lack. And so when Paul and Barnabas see that there's opposition and that the new believers are being poisoned against them, they stay. They stay to continue preaching, to continue answering and destroying lofty arguments raised up against Christ. So that these new believers, instead of seeing these lofty arguments, don't we see this all the time? Don't we see ridiculous, lofty arguments raised up against Christ and then they fill the skies like a smog in our culture and everyone starts believing them. Everyone just, it just becomes common knowledge that the Bible's full of errors. You ever heard that before? That's just part of the, that's just part of our cultural smog now. 
It's just out there. Lofty arguments raised up against the knowledge of Christ. You know, all kinds of stuff. Oh, the Bible condones slavery. The Bible is misogynistic. The Bi- and just attacks and it just goes into the smog. And there's not enough Christians taking every lofty argument captive to Christ and destroying these lofty arguments and presenting the validity and the beauty of the Christian worldview. That's what Paul's doing here. And we need more of that in our world. We need more people saying, this is not a legitimate criticism against Christ. How many young people are taken captive by these lofty arguments? And Paul recognizes that there is a real danger. There is a real danger of people who heard the beauty and the purity of the gospel. They confessed Jesus Christ. They believed in some fashion. And Paul says, I'm not going to let their minds be poisoned. So Paul is not only preaching to convert sinners to Christ, he is preaching to preserve saints in Christ. So what we need to see from this is that the message of the gospel, the preaching of the gospel, is not just a starting point. It's not just, a, it's, it's not just an, a Billy Graham crusade on repeat. Now, Billy Graham had a different ministry than me. I'm not criticizing. In fact, I'm going to positively reflect on Billy Graham at the end of the sermon. But Billy Graham gave a, he gave a starting point everywhere he went. He gave a starting. He went to a city and he said, John 3, 16, you know, come to Christ. He has loved you and you are forgiven him. He gave a starting point. But you know what was so critical to Billy Graham's ministry? That those folks who came to Christ would go and find a church and then feed on the preaching of the word of God to feed their souls, to grow that faith, to make them into oaks of righteousness. And so the preaching of God's word actually preserves those who have come to faith. Paul would also write in 1 Corinthians 15 too. He said these words later on. I would remind you of the gospel I preached by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed in vain. This is not a, this is not a scare tactic verse. What Paul is saying here is not that, you know, at any minute you could be suddenly launched from your faith into oblivion and lost forever. What he's saying is, in order to continue your, your life as a Christian, you need to hold fast to the gospel. You need to hold fast to it. There's no such thing as a Christian who's not holding fast to the gospel. There's no such thing. And so Paul remains here in order to preserve them, to continue preaching the gospel, that they will cling to it. Up until such a point that he can leave, that they are sufficiently clinging to the word or that there are others who are trained to preach the word to them. So he preserves against this specific attack. And so we don't just persuade sinners, but we preserve Christians. Paul also said in Colossians 1, he said, we aim to present everyone mature in Christ. There is this process that is demanded of in the Christian life, and it is fed by the word of God. So number one, we have the messenger aims to persuade. We have that the messenger commits to the goal or aims to preserve. And then number three, we see this reality breaking out in almost every town he goes to. The message divides, but the people of the city were divided. So they remained for a long time and they're speaking boldly for the Lord who, who bore witness. And then in, number, in verse 4, and we're going to come back to that 
um, the bearing witness. But in verse 4, it says, But the people of the city were, were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And so this is, again, this is the reality. This is the product of a persuasive gospel. A gospel that never commands that anybody do anything or respond in any way or move in any way, you will not have division, will you? A gospel which is easy to maintain your status quo in your life will never divide. But a gospel that says you must repent, you must follow, you must believe, you must be baptized, it will divide because many will not want to follow. Many will say this is too, the cost is too great. Many will say this is intolerant. Many will have all kinds of criticisms and they will say no. And so a gospel that persuades is the same gospel that will divide. The gospel will divide and it is so easy to be discouraged by that. I think just as humans, that and especially in our culture, which we typically want to see positive results to prove that we're doing the right thing. We want to see our businesses grow. We want to see things improve. We want to see harmony increase. We, we want to see positive signs that we're doing the right thing. And yet here we see that the gospel continually divides people. We have this whole city lining up on two sides of the same line, one with the Jews and one with the apostles and saying, you know, we stand against this message. You were either for Christ or you were against him. Christianity demands a verdict. And the same message that demands a verdict will also create a divide in people. The gospel truly searches out the heart. It reveals the intentions and the thoughts of man, we're told in the scriptures. And so division is a natural reality which precipitates from the preaching of the message. So we have the messenger aims to persuade. We have the messenger aims to preserve. And we have the message divides. And then we see number four, the message carries the authority of God. And this is something that we cannot ever lose as a church. We do not preach ourselves. We do not preach a lifestyle change. We do not preach a, a philosophically superior way of living or thinking. But we preach Christ. We preach the gospel of the living God. In verse 3, So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace. How did he bear witness? By granting signs and wonders that they would be done by their hands. Consider the spectacle of this. So they come in and they're preaching and many believe by the preaching of the word of God and they're converted. And then there's the Jews who want to stir up poisonous division against them. And then the apostles say, no, we're not leaving you with these um, contradictors. We're going to stay and we're going to preach against them. We're going to preach the truth. And then what does God do? God says, yeah, and I'm here too. And God grants that signs and wonders be done. Now, we're not told specifically what they were. But you can imagine that this was a spectacle. That there was this, there was this battle going on in the public square for who owns the truth. For who is telling the truth. And God, with his messengers, says they are. Do you remember in, um, when Moses was called to go free the Israelites from Egypt? And he went down there and God said, I will be with you, Moses. You need to go talk to Pharaoh face to face and contradict him. You need to refute him and command that he let the people go. 
And he said, but my mouth, I'm not good at speaking. And, and then he would throw down his staff and, it, and God turned it into a snake. And then the magicians of Pharaoh would throw their staff down and it would turn into a snake as well. And then what did God's snake do to the magician's snake? Boom! God was with his messengers. Isaiah 44, 26 says that the Lord confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messenger. The Lord stands with those who speak his word. The Lord confirms the counsel of his messenger. Friends, that's why we have a prophetic ministry in the world. Every single one of us is a prophet, priest, and king. Why? Because we carry with us the word of the Lord. Now, a specific historical note here. We have the apostles preaching, taking the message of Christ out beyond Judea and Samaria. And as a historical reality, this is quite in line with the Old Testament, where God would set aside a prophet. He would send him to a people that he was going to call back to himself. Most of the prophets spoke to Israel. And God would grant signs and wonders. And this is not just randomly scattered throughout the Old Testament. As, as some of us maybe vaguely think, like, the Old Testament is where the miracles happened and the New Testament is where suffering happened. Like, it's not like that. God had specific seasons of miracles. And the reason was because God chose not to just speak from a booming voice in the sky, but he chose to use people like me and you. He chose to use Moses. He chose to use Joshua. He chose to use Isaiah. He chose to use Jeremiah, although he was young. God chooses people who are fallible, who are sinners, who in and of themselves are not very interesting people. And God takes them, puts his spirit in them, and says, go and speak for me. And when they doubt, God says, I will be with you. And he grants signs and wonders. Elijah and Elisha had a miraculous ministry. And the reason is because he uses human vessels. It's because he uses people like us that God needs to attest that the message is truly divine. Now, that's an amazing encouragement that God not only wants us to have his divine thoughts, his divine plan, but that he puts it in the mouth of people we can understand and people we can relate to. It doesn't make the word any less authoritative. In fact, it is divine and it is binding. But the apostles really carried out this prophetic role in the early church. They were literally prophets of God. Remember, it says here that they weren't just speaking boldly, they were speaking boldly for the Lord, for the Lord. They spoke as if God was speaking to this people and God granted an attesting and a guaranteeing sign with them that they were telling the truth. Why? Because people, didn't we go over this a couple weeks ago? It's because people matter. People matter to God. It matters that these people are preserved in the truth and that they are assured that what they believe is true. And so we see this fourfold um, presentation of the gospel, which is that the messenger, um, the messenger first preaches, he aims to persuade, the messenger aims to preserve, that the message divides, and that the message is the authoritative word of God. It is God speaking from heaven. And so what are, what are three ways that we can go from here and how we can adjust how we think and live in the church? Number one is that the gospel <clears throat> and its messengers are needed in hard places and at hard times. We see at the conclusion of this passage, and, and Alan is going to take up for us in a couple weeks, um, 
the stoning of Paul. Paul is stoned to the point where they think he's dead. And the plot is hatched right here in the preaching of the gospel. It says that when they learned that there was a plot to stone them, that they fled. Literally, physical escape was necessary for these apostles to continue doing ministry. The gospel and its messengers are needed in hard places and at hard times. Now, friends, we, for our culture today, we live in a divided, confused, and I would say hostile time in terms of the Christian faith. And I found this quote from Frodo, this conversation between Frodo and Gandalf that I thought sometimes summarizes exactly how we feel. I wish it had not happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf. And so do all who live to see such times. But it is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Now, I so relate to Frodo sometimes. I wish it had not happened in my time. I wish I was preaching in a different time, in a different culture. You know, give me a, give me a church down in the Bible Belt where people fall into church by accident. The gospel is needed in hard places and at hard times. We are planted here in Smith Falls, which is the world's, the, the, maybe the world's, but at least Canada or North America's largest marijuana producer. This town is literally building a culture around drug use. Now, there's fantastic medicinal properties to marijuana. I'm not making comment on that. But what I'm saying is the identity of this town is structured around this new industry. Is the gospel needed in Smith Falls? Is our desire to persuade people in this town to come to Christ? Yes. And we can't run from that. We don't adjust our ministry because it's hard. And I saw, and I'm going to talk about Billy Graham. I, I sometimes wish I lived in Billy Graham's era. All you had to do was say, put up a sign that said Billy Graham, and he would sell out 60,000 person stadiums. And he would preach a simple gospel message, and he would have these altar calls, and he was flying all over the world and you probably know somebody who was saved at a Billy Graham crusade. Different times, friends. Different times. We live today and we live now and we live here. And I would take Gandalf's advice. You know, I wish it too. I wish it was a different time, but God has not called us to a different time. He has called us here and he has called us now. And I think the apostles lived this more dramatically than even we can imagine. That they were called to hard places and to face hard things but when they learned of it, verse 7, they continued to preach the gospel. They didn't run from that calling. Number two, uh, how should we think about this? I would ask and urge that you, you don't, be, don't be put off by the seeming repetitive emphasis on teaching the word of God. Uh, now, I recognize that to be sure there are dangers of mere academic knowledge or sort of storing knowledge up in the head and, and not allowing it to transform your life. But we don't, I pray we don't preach a gospel like that, that we persuade people to move and change and live according to it. But my friends, churches far and wide, especially here in Canada, take a tour through small town today and, and, and discover what churches are dedicating themselves to. Churches far and wide have abandoned the apostolic pattern. They have abandoned the persuasive gospel preaching that we are called to, and they've imported philosophy, art, and entertainment from a worldly mindset. 
to attract people but never to convert them. Pastors have taken up crowd management and leadership strategies as opposed to preaching and persuading and preserving. And it is shipwrecking a generation. It is shipwrecking a generation of young people who are abandoning the church because it has never offered them anything more than the world can offer. And so we cannot repeat and dedicate ourselves to this more fervently um, than now. And now I do want to share another quote for this section. And I don't, this is not an endorsement um, of Francis Chan. I, I think he's got a, a lot of um, issues right now in the public sphere. And I'm not, I'm not criticizing him for that, but I don't want it, this to be an open endorsement. But he has a quote, which I think nails it for our generation. Nails it for our generation. His insight here is piercing. If Muslims were advertising donuts and a free iPad raffle as a means to get people to their events, I would find that ridiculous. If they needed rock concerts and funny speakers to draw crowds, I would see their gods as cheap and weak. And it's so true. It is so true. How much credibility do we get as a church when we say, oh, we worship the almighty, all-powerful, all-knowing, living God who made everything. And in order to convince you of that, I want you to know we have the best coffee and donuts. It's silly. It's crazy for the church to hold this treasure of the gospel and then to sprinkle foolish, frivolous things as incentives to come and hear it. Friends, the genuine preaching of the gospel of the Lord coupled with your genuine love toward people is the most powerful church growth strategy you could possibly have. And so I would urge us not to tire of the emphasis on God's word as being the center of what we do. Because as I said a couple weeks ago, without it, we are, we are not a Christian church. The word brings a high view of God and it brings a saving view of God to humanity. Christianity offers nothing less than total freedom in the knowledge of who God is. Remember that the word is Christ. It is not, you know, follow this God, do your best, but it is that the promises of God are delivered in Christ. So number one, the gospel is needed in hard places and hard times. Number two, don't tire or be off-put by the emphasis on God's word and preaching. It's the apostolic pattern. And number three, let God own the results. And this is, I'm telling you, one of the most freeing, relieving realities I have ever come to as a Christian. And it's not just for me because I oversee a church. It's for you in your lives with your children or your brother who's not a believer or your coworker who is a constant struggle or that hard-hearted person that you are trying to get the gospel across to or that spouse who has left or whatever. All of the ways we see our ministry lives fail and fall short to get the results that we wanted. God owns the results. We are responsible to faithfulness to the pattern, faithfulness to him, enjoyment of Christ. God owns the results. Do you think Paul thought, oh, I'm doing it wrong because they want to stone me? Paul never once apologized for it because he knew that the results belonged to the Lord. The results belong to the Lord. The crowd is divided. They're enduring personal attacks on their credibility and they're enduring physical attacks on their safety. And yet they go on because they say the results of the Lord's. He is building the church. Christ gave us authority to do this and he is our master. He is our savior. We can do nothing less but preach him. 
We are messengers for his glory. What a great encouragement that is. And so, friends, I, I would urge you in your own hearts, let God own the results. Don't wish away the time and place that you've been called to. And do not weary of studying and delighting in God's word and obeying it when it's preached to you in its fullness. Let's close in prayer and we're going to enjoy the Lord's Supper together.